The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we are in the middle of celebrating Jane Austen's final completed novel, Persuasion, published posthumously on December 20th, 1817, a little more than 200 years ago. Today, we'll hear from one of Jane's spiritual heirs, the historical romance novelist Gina Bonaguro, author of The Virgins of Venice and many other books, who will tell us about her experience with the inspirational Jane Austen and give us her five favorite things about the first half of Persuasion. Gina Bonaguro, Jane Austen, and Persuasion Book One, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. We're talking about Jane Austen and persuasion. The last time we talked about persuasion as a concept. What goes into that title? Lots of things, actually. We persuade and we are persuaded, for better or worse, and with consequences large and small. With Iago, we saw persuasion gone bad leading to Othello's murder of Desdemona. And an even bigger example, perhaps, is the serpent persuading Eve with what Milton called his sleeked tongue. But before we begin today, let's take a little break from Jane Austen to start with some literary news. This comes from Harper's Magazine, home of the famous Harper's Index, which collects surprising stats each month. In this case, they've done some other collecting. Similes from the pen of critic Dwight Garner, writing for the New York Times. The title of this is Comparative Literature, with the subtitle From Similes Used by the Critic Dwight Garner in Book Reviews for the New York Times Since 2017. We don't hear what the comparisons are, so we have no basis to judge the similes for aptness or effect. Instead, we can simply revel in the imagery And maybe imagine the critic cranking these out like a kind of demented Willy Wonka. A Willy Wonka at the word factory. Here we go. Comparative literature from similes used by the critic Dwight Gardner in book reviews for the New York Times since 2017. Like frogs run over by a lawnmower. Like a goose dementedly stuffing its own liver like an octopus playing the bagpipes, like an eagle outed as a mere turn, like an armchair inside a snake, like listening to someone trying to play Long Tall Sally on solo cello, like reading the liner notes to a Frank Sinatra album at midnight through a glass of bourbon, like being stranded in a bar where the jukebox has only two songs, both by Pat Benatar. Like watching Merle Haggard perform in an uptight club with a quiet policy and a two-drink minimum. Like a squash opponent who pockets your serve, walks off the court, and returns four months later to fire it back. Like a jittery teenager with bedhead, cystic acne, and moat-like halitosis who needs $50 and the car keys. 
like a tour of a once majestic 18th century house now burned to its foundations that rejoices in what's left amid the ashes. Like prolonged hallucinations. Beautiful stuff. Any of those books you'd want to read or authors or characters? I would say the one that resonates the most for me is like reading the liner notes to a Frank Sinatra album at midnight through a glass of bourbon. I have been there, people. That's how I look at life most of the time. Okay, persuasion. Last time we talked about where Jane was in her life when she wrote the book and about the concept of persuasion. This time I'm going to set up the characters and the book for the first half, and then we'll have Gina here to talk about it. Spoilers begin now. You have been alerted. Persuasion begins with a look at the Elliot family. Sir Walter, the patriarch whose wife has died years earlier, has steered the family into some financial trouble by spending beyond his means. They are planning now to rent out their estate and move to a cheaper home in Bath until things improve. His eldest daughter, Elizabeth, supports the move. We see that both Sir Walter and Elizabeth are of somewhat dubious judgment, caring excessively for appearance rather than substance. Anne Elliot is the most practical of Sir Walter's children, but she's also the most overlooked. Another sister, Mary, who is married and lives nearby, values Anne for her babysitting abilities, though she, too, tends to see Anne as a bit player in the story in which she herself is the star. The family is advised by Lady Russell, a family friend and distant relative who has been a kind of second mother to Anne ever since her own mother died. Before they move to Bath, the Elliots find a new tenant for the home, Admiral Croft and his wife Sophia, who have returned from the war against France. Sophia's brother joins the Admiral and his wife for a visit. He is Captain Frederick Wentworth, also a Navy hero, wealthy thanks to his service in the war. Anne's life, which looked like it would be limited to shuttling back and forth between Bath, where her father and sister Elizabeth ignored her plain-spoken, common-sense advice to their detriment, and her sister Mary's house, where Mary would thoughtlessly take advantage of Anne's good nature as she played out the dramas of her marriage and her in-laws. In other words, the life that Anne looked poised to lead, a life lived for others with no real hopes of her own, is transformed by this reintroduction of Captain Frederick Wentworth into her life. We now hear a part of Anne's past. Eight years before, she and Frederick were an item. In fact, they were close to engagement, but Anne was persuaded by Lady Russell that the match was not desirable. Frederick had limited prospects at the time. To marry him then, at such a young age, would have been imprudent. As I mentioned, Lady Russell was like a second mother to Anne, and she also knew her very well, and she also possessed much better judgment than anyone in Anne's family, save Anne herself. She loved Anne and had no ulterior motive other than Anne's happiness. What she said made sense to Anne. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, Anne never did marry after that, and things looked very different with the benefit of the intervening years, it's heartbreaking that Anne didn't follow her romantic impulses 
when she was young. She could have been the star of her own show rather than the sidekick to others. She's dutiful and helpful and has carved out a good life for herself, giving as the natural giver she is, but an enabler of happiness more than an experiencer of it. And the enabling she does can't even be that satisfying. Most of what she does is help shallow people get out of their own way. They get what they want with her help, but what they want is not particularly noble or meaningful. They are satisfied, but it's mostly short-term, with more shallow wanting soon to follow. And we suspect, would have been a much worthier partner and mother than any of these people. Not many people knew about her brief relationship with Captain, or then he was Frederick Wentworth. Her sister Mary was gone, for example, when it occurred. Those who did know don't seem to remember or have minimized its importance, and Frederick himself seems to bear a resentment toward her for their past breakup. And anyway, Captain Frederick Wentworth doesn't need to cling to the past. He's a prize match now, due to his wealth and distinction, and he doesn't need the old hag Anne. I say old hag with affection for the world of Jane Austen. Anne is 27 years old, which in our culture is about as beautiful as it gets. 27, second only to whatever age my wife happens to be at the present moment. So that's number one in terms of beauty. For number two, I'll take age 27. But in Austin land, 19 is revered and 27 is all used up. So that's strike two. So Wentworth looks to the Musgrove sisters, who are Mary's husband's sisters, Henrietta and Louisa. As Anne watches this play out, she feels the pangs of having lost out herself. She still loves him, It threatens to overwhelm her at times, and yet she overhears a conversation that makes her realize he has not forgiven her for their breakup years before. She was persuaded. That persuasion led to her current state. It also exposed a kind of flaw or weakness, that it wasn't just her decision, but that she was talked into it by another that troubles him. If you love someone and they don't love you back, well, that's one thing. But if you love someone and they do love you and they turn out to be persuaded by another, effectively someone else's puppet, it's particularly frustrating. No one wants to think their love is doomed because of the manipulation or influence of others. You could have loved me or not loved me, but I didn't take you for a puppet. I thought I needed you to love me. I didn't think I needed... Lady Russell's approval, too. This is all unspoken. Anne doesn't want to let herself get her hopes up, and she's civil enough not to interfere with Wentworth's apparent imminent engagement to Louisa Musgrove. Book one ends with an accident. Anne and some of the others go with Wentworth to the coast to visit his fellow officers, Captain Harville and Captain Benwick. Captain Benwick is in mourning over the death of his fiancée and Anne shows great sympathy toward him, and the two reach a kind of understanding thanks to their admiration for romantic poets. I'll give you some more of that as soon as I'm done with this synopsis, since this is the history of literature, and I can't resist spending some time on what Jane Austen chose to insert in her book, circa 1815, about the romantic poets they were reading. Captain Benwick isn't the only one who pays attention to Anne, Her cousin, Mr. William Elliot, is also intrigued by her, and he comes with a great possibility 
He, in fact, is the heir to Kellynch Hall, the, mis- the estate that Anne's father and family had to leave because they could no longer afford its upkeep. A match between Anne and William would restore the family to their beloved and, in Sir Walter's eyes anyway, rightful home. But we're now looking ahead to book two, and I mentioned an accident to close book one. Anne and the others are out for a walk when Louisa falls from a seawall and is concussed. Everyone panics, but Anne, who immediately takes charge, organizing everyone and telling them who should do what. Louisa is forced to recover here on the coast for several months. Frederick feels guilty about her injury happening on his watch but he also was quite impressed with Anne and how she responded under pressure. It's one of the great accident scenes in literature. According to literary legend Alfred, Lord Tennyson was visiting Lyme Regis, the coastal town, with some friends, and they started showing him the sights, telling him all about the spot where the Duke of Monmouth landed in what was known as the Pitchfork Rebellion, an attempt to deposed James II from the throne in 1685, with the goal of replacing James II with a Protestant. Tennyson, gazing at the coast and the famous seawall, apparently interrupted, Don't talk to me of the Duke of Monmouth. Show me the exact spot where Louisa Busgrove fell. End quote. As book one closes, we are left to think, if only, if only, if only, if only Lady Russell hadn't been so damn influential, if Anne and Frederick had impulsively done what maybe wasn't the smartest idea at the time, they would clearly be happier together, and now it's all lost, and Anne has lived and will live a smaller life, either with someone she doesn't love as much or with no one at all, and she'll be surrounded by smaller people, whose lives will be of magnified importance simply because they are actually living lives with spouses and children and in-laws and relationships, while Anne is effectively a nanny, a chaperone, a caretaker, a perennial giver with no taking on the horizon. Okay, so that's book one, also what we might call the Only Anne, half of the book. Who cares about her wants and needs and desires and happiness? She's only Anne. Steady, reliable, valuable, welcome, and completely overlooked. And all that seems natural because she's Anne. Oh, her? That's only Anne. Only and secretly lonely Anne. I'm getting a little lonely myself. Let's hit the reset button and invite our guest, Gina Bonaguro, to join. We'll talk about her love for Jane Austen, how that fits into her own writing of romance novels and historical romance novels, and how Gina responded to the first half of Persuasion this time around. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and 
quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Joining me now is Gina Buonaguro, author of The Virgins of Venice, an indigo bestseller. She's here today to discuss Jane Austen's Persuasion, the first half of the book. Mike Palindrome will be here later to discuss the second. Gina Buonaguro, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me again, and I uh, am happy to hear that I'm in good company with Mike Palindrome. That's right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're the lead-off and he'll bat clean-up. I feel a little intimidated, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Okay. Well, Gina, last time you were here, we discussed E.M. Forster in A Room with a View. I'm curious to know what your relationship with Jane Austen has been like. Yeah, I've been a Jane fan since my first year of college. So I was mm -hmm. around 18. I had to read Pride and Prejudice for a class. Um, and uh, I then quickly got a, a very thick volume with all six of her novels contained in it, and I read them all, uh -huh. uh, and I definitely, yeah. I read Pride and Prejudice every few years, maybe every five years, Yeah, uh, I would say, and that... I've watched all the movies and shows, or, or not all, most of them. Yeah, okay, I was going to ask you about that, if the, any of the films or television adaptations have stood out for you in particular. Yeah, so, uh, of course, I've watched the BBC Colin Firth version. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed that. I had the first time I saw it was years after it came out, and my husband took our daughter when she was very young away for the weekend. And I was like, I'm just going to sit and indulge in this very long. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Bride and Prejudice. So I, I love that. I, I really enjoyed the Kira Knightley version, which I've seen a few times. Mm -hmm. I've seen the two Persuasion movies that I'm aware of. I tried to watch a Northanger Abbey that was made many years ago, and I could not get into that version. Hmm. But I do also love Sanditon, which is the series based on her unfinished novel. Oh, yeah. I need yeah. to check that out. I would enjoy that, I'm sure. Yes, I think you would. Okay. So as an author yourself, is there anything in particular when you read these Jane Austen books? Do you, do you take any inspiration or any practical tips from her novels? Or are you just, just reading them as a reader? Or how do you approach them? Yeah, so I think I'd say both at this point as a as just a reader and an enjoyer of her novels, but also as a writer, I am just I'm 
amazed at the way she is able to strike this tone between the ridiculous and the sublime. Mm. <laughs> That's how I describe mm-hmm. it. She captures these nuanced feelings, the sibling and family relationships, class considerations, all in a very serious way, but in this light tone. Yeah. Uh, it's just unbelievably good. It makes her such good company. Yeah, you would enjoy hanging out with her. Yeah, right. I think it comes through in her letters as well. I, I think it's it's just kind of this, I think I might have said this before on the podcast, but you do feel like she could fit right in at a party or a family gathering or something today. She she seems to have that sense of irony, a sense of you know gentle sarcasm, and just a mm-hmm. shrewdness of observation that feels very modern. I think that you summed it up perfectly, the shrewdness of observation. Mm. Okay, yeah. so Persuasion, it sounds like you read it as part of the big, thick volume that you bought. Did your experience change? Was it different this time around when I asked you to read it for this podcast? Yes, because I hadn't actually read that one in quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had watched this last summer, uh, everyone was talking about the Persuasion that came out on Netflix, and it was very controversial. Yeah. So you heard about it. Yeah, right. But so one, well, I had an evening to myself, and I didn't realize I was on Netflix, so I was going to different streaming services that I have. And I actually found one that's on Amazon Prime, which is the one with Sally Hawkins, mm. and it came out about 20 years ago. So I watched that, and, and I think that was actually good because that was a more serious interpretation of yep. persuasion. Then I realized I made a mistake, and I watched the Netflix one, and at first I did not like it. Uh, so then I read, you know, in December, I read Persuasion, uh, and then I watched the, the, that Netflix version again, and I thought, actually, I thought they captured the tone and the ridiculousness mm. so perfectly. So I actually appreciated it more upon rereading Persuasion this time around. Yeah. So it was, you know, more that tongue-in-cheek feeling. She's trying to get something serious across, but she does it in this fun way with these or somewhat silly characters. I thought it really captured it well. Actually. Right, right. And the, the critics sort of missed that part of it, or they, they didn't like that part of it. That seems to be kind of the, the basis of their criticism, is Persuasion is the most mature of the works, and this is the one that the grown-up Jane wrote, and that kind of thing. And, and it sounds like you were having kind of a different experience with it. I wonder how much those um, reviewers had recently read the novel. Mm, mm-hmm. But also, as I was reading it, I was struck, actually, with its comparisons to Pride and Prejudice. I don't know how many years she wrote between those books. Do you know? Quite a few, actually, because Persuasion was her last book. Right, right. And let's see. Yeah, I want to say they were 20 years apart, but let me, uh, which is quite a a big deal in her life. Let me uh, pull the dates here. Yeah, she only lived to her 40s, right? Yeah, Persuasion yeah. was, and she had gone through, you know, it's basically somebody, especially in that era, uh, you know, on the side of being a debutante to being uh, uh, an old maid. I hate to use that phrase, but that's sort of the, <laughs> the spirit in which they themselves consider it. Okay, so Persuasion was published in December 20th, 1817. Okay. And Pride and that was first published in 1813. I'm just pulling it up here. 1797 was when they first tried to get publisher interest in the manuscript. So 20 years. Oh, it's a full 20 years. Yeah, full 20 so. years. Um, it is a real difference in kind of the the maturity of of Jane in her life. 
I think she could look back upon it with a little more humor, maybe like mm-hmm. that she had, you know, maybe when she wrote Pride and Prejudice, she was more in it or just more recently out of that stage of finding a husband. And yeah, here she is much later in life and she can look back at it. And I think she's kind of laughing. And, you know, she's also she goes from being that generation where it's maybe her and her sister and, and their close friends. And it feels very dramatic to them as it does to young people. And then she becomes more of an aunt-like figure and more of the, uh, I'm going to advise my niece. And and you kind of do uh, see a difference in the tone of, you know, maybe what you were so worked up about was was maybe not quite seeing things as clearly as one sees with some wisdom and experience. And in fact, she's like Lady Russell in a way. Yeah, right. Um, She had a similar experience where she was advising someone and felt very strongly resistant to the idea that her niece wanted, you know, they all respected and revered Aunt Jane. And Jane kind of chafed at that and sort of said, you know, you, you want me to make these decisions for you, but you need to make them for yourself. And you can kind of see that built into persuasion here of you might regret it forever if you let the older, wiser person kind of tell you what to do. Oh, I didn't know that story. So I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. So one question I wanted to ask is because we are now a couple of hundred years down the road and we live in a world where women have professions available to them, careers, they can earn their own income and, and all of that. Does that mean for you, are are you distant from the world of the Elliots? Do you relate to them or do you observe them sort of like an anthropologist looking at a culture from another time? Well, on the one hand, I, it relates to my own work, uh, which is set in the 1500s and yeah, about 300 right. years later. I mean, it's all the same considerations of class and money, though I think finally love starts to come into it more in Jane's era. Mm-hmm. Um Worry that really was not a consideration at all 300 years before that, at least for the upper class. Um, But I think even now, obviously women can do anything they want now and they can do a lot, but I still think there's there's a lot going on with money, men with money. It's still a thing. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. I don't know. Maybe in some ways the class divide is actually just as sharp as it was in Jane's age again. I, I think we you know we talk a lot about income inequality and in some ways the class divide is still very much there. Mm-hmm. It would be very hard to bridge for a lot of people. Yeah. Also very educated women are finding it hard to find a life partner because a lot of men don't like when women out earn them. Mm. So they have the opposite problem that they used to have. Yeah. Uh, but it's still hard to find a good guy for a lot of very smart, educated, working women. Yeah, it feels like, you know, all of the the external trappings and, and the money and the, the inheritance and, and all of that feels to me like it is kind of another world. But then when you think about the psychology of the characters and what they're facing, <laughs> it feels very recognizable. And just decisions like, is this the person you want to be with for the rest of your life? And how do you mm-hmm. make that decision? And who do you trust to help you make it? And and what if yeah. you get it wrong? And what if you're being too hasty? And, you know, are you weighing all the right factors and that kind of thing? It feels very current and, and recognizable to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And family relationships, mm. she just 
still nail family relationships yeah. that are still happening today. Sibling rivalry and how they interact with each other. It just seems so real and resonates. So they're a little ridiculous. She goes a little ridiculous with Marion and Elizabeth, but uh, you can kind of still see that happening today. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Anne and her relationship with these siblings and this family. I mean, that's one of the the pleasures of this. You sort of, if you're used to the world of Pride and Prejudice, you are used to you know, this sort of wonderful family and then this firecracker, Lizzie, who's within it and is, you know, ready to set off some sparks. But this one, I just love the way it's set up where you're kind of expecting that the heroine is going to have strong and good people around her. And instead, <laughs> she's surrounded by these these horribly shallow people. Uh, and it, it kind of, by her just being sensible, she seems to almost have superpowers. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't you say that Elizabeth is really, um, I should say Lizzie from Pride and Prejudice, that she really only has Jane, who's sensible, her father to some degree, her mother's ridiculous, her younger sisters are... That's true. Yeah, I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of the opening part with her father, where I was thinking yeah, well, her father true. was such a good ally. Yeah, and here the, the father is so, uh, oh, like he's... he's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, so ridiculous. He's, yeah. I keep using the word ridiculous. I got to expand my vocabulary. Yeah. He's so shallow. He's so caught up in the class, where he is in the class structure. And Anne doesn't care really about any of that, right? And and Elizabeth, her sister, uh, she cares a lot about it. Mary is very narcissistic. I'm not sure. She kind of, I guess she cares about the class structure, too, where she is in the hierarchy. She does, because she gets insulted at various points when she's not introduced in the right order. <laughs> right, right. But, and I, um, I can't remember now if this is from the book or, or if it was something they introduced in the film, but I think it was in the book as well, where she's upset that they want to go for a walk without her. And, and when yeah, she's... She doesn't even want to go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I feel like the, pers- the Netflix persuasion version gets it, because you get you get Anne giving you the eye roll <laughs> that you know that internally in the book she's thinking about that. She's doing that eye roll in her head, but we kind of get it more visibly in the movie because she's just like, I can't believe this is my sister. You know, I have to put up with this. Yeah. Yeah. There's that great moment where the, the sister is basically like, Anne is proving herself to be a natural caretaker slash motherly type and and she's the one that you would want to entrust with your kids and all of that and and her sister twists that around and sort of says like well my problem is i just care too much you wouldn't know what that's like you know <laughs> it's hard for me to it's see always... them suffer i can't take care of them because it's uh i i feel so strongly as a mother that i can't take care of them i mean ultimate narcissism right so, yeah 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 <laughs> Okay. Do you remember a moment where Frederick Wentworth in this is in part one where he actually kind of outdid Anne in a certain respect? I found it very touching and I wondered if you noticed it as well. It's a really small moment, but it kind of it kind of foreshadows him for me. Is it when he puts her on the carriage with his sister and, and Admiral Croft? That would be a good walking. moment, but yeah, that yeah, he's he's definitely shows that he's considerate. I was thinking of the moment where the kids won't mind her, and oh she, yes, and he, and he steps takes in. them off her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's I thought similar, it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah, where he's looking out for her. Yep, and it shows that he's got some skills in this regard too. It's sort of 
it it kind of struck me as you know Anne is always so clearly the adult in the room, so to speak. That one kind of struck me as Jane willing to sacrifice it a little bit to say, you know, this Wentworth guy has got stuff going for him too. He's another adult in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I yeah I remember that in the in the book where yeah where the child's climbing all over her right and he takes them off and it shows the it shows his potential as a father. Yeah, exactly, and that these two might have some domestic harmony in store for them. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more with Gina Bonagoro. interrupting this interruption because I forgot to mention the romantic poetry in book one, even though I promised to fill you in on that. So what we have is a grieving widower, Captain Benwick, who recognizes in Anne Elliot a kindred spirit, someone familiar with literature and capable of discussing it intelligently. He tells her he's been reading Sir Walter Scott and Byron, and asks her opinion. Quote, He showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet, Scott, and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other, Byron. He repeated with such tremulous feeling the various lines which imaged a broken heart or a mind destroyed by wretchedness and looked so entirely as if he meant to be understood that she ventured to hope he did not always read only poetry, and to say that she thought it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely, and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly. His looks showing him not pained, but pleased with this allusion to his situation, she was emboldened to go on, and feeling in herself the right of seniority of mind, she ventured to recommend a larger allowance of prose in his daily study. End quote. That's such a neat way of Austin framing this, that Anne respects the power of poetry, but also says, hey, look at this. If it's really this powerful, the people who are most capable of feeling its impact are probably also made the most miserable by it. Like you, Captain Benwick. Misery loves company, but the company is also miserable, leading to more misery. Why not add some prose? Like let's say, novels by a certain author known for her astute observations regarding English society. We don't need to name names here. It rhymes with Jane Austen. That's definitely one of my favorite moments in book one. Let's hear from Gina what her top five moments are. Okay, we're here with Gina Bonogoro, author of The Virgins of Venice, talking about Jane Austen's persuasion. Gina, I asked you to send me some favorite moments of yours, and you sent me a list prior to the call, and I, I like them so much, I just was wanted to walk through them with you. So, number one, 
Anne is the one everyone seems to both dismiss and yet be everyone's confidant. She's in some ways a classic middle child, uh, which we've talked about a little bit as, well, we haven't talked about how much they dismiss her. That's the thing. I mean, I think Jane Austen in her real life was quite respected by everyone for being, you know, so wise and, and full of good advice and all of that. But Jane, I don't know if she felt this at times that she was overlooked or dismissed, but anyway, she was able to really capture that for this character, Anne, that they call her only Anne. Like it's. <laughs> yeah. Do you know where Jane was in the birth order of her family? There were six boys and two girls. There was James, George, Edward, Henry Thomas. All boys. All boys, the oldest was 10 years older than Jane. So they were all fairly close in age, considering how many there were. Then there was Cassandra, her beloved sister, who was fifth. And then Frank was sixth, then Jane, and then uh, Charles John. So eight kids in 14 years. And you can see Cassandra being maybe like uh, Jane from Pride and Prejudice, or her loving sister. So it doesn't quite work. I don't think it actually quite lines up as I was thinking. But she, I, regardless, she, she observed middle children. And I think yeah. she really nailed how they're often forgotten. They're overlooked. They're taken for granted. And yet they seem to be everyone's friends at the same time. They're the ones that everyone wants to go to. Right. I mean, the father certainly treats her like a forgotten middle child. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the the typical, uh, we're used to seeing this in, in the world of Jane Austen, that once you hit that certain age and you're no longer the bell of the ball, so to speak. Uh, and in this case, it, it seems comic to us now that the age was 27 and she's all washed up and no longer is beautiful and all of that. But, you know, do you think that if you were making this book, I know you set your books in the past, if you were writing a book set in 2023, do you think you could kind of get some of this just by moving the age back and saying, you know, she's 39 or 42 or something like that and still kind of get that this is a person who's who's at the end of her childbearing years or that kind of thing? Or do you think we've so moved on from this idea that, well, you've now aged out of the possibility of love and we're no longer going to kind of consider you in that respect? I think that's a really interesting question. So if we're taking a woman who's like 37, I... I mean, a woman can do anything now. She can have children without men. She doesn't even need them. And yet you still hear about women in their 30s and they hear that biological clock ticking. Mm -hmm. For women, there is a biological consideration there if you want to have children versus, say, adopt, I guess. Mm, Yeah. So if you want to have children in your life, you need to consider your age. And often that does go hand in hand with a a life partner. I think in today's life and culture, you know, it's all about love and going Mm -hmm. with ideal and what makes you happy. But I think sometimes people forget that what makes you happy might require thought Mm. and a little unhappiness to get to the point of feeling happy. (laughs) Mm. We say, oh, don't worry about it. But I think that's like a little unfair to young people. Like, I think you should say, think about, I think you should want to think about it and keep that in mind. It's a very practical suggestion, but I think you want to take happiness, but also practicality because you, there is real biology there. 
that you can't ignore. Well, that seems to lead us right into your second thing that you raised, second of five. You said how Jane Austen's characters seem to experience love differently. They seem to be better able to distinguish between real and lasting love versus an infatuation slash crush slash passing interest. Yeah, I, I do feel that. I feel that they really analyze their feelings, or at mm, least mm-hmm. Jane heroines, <laughs> yeah. Jane Austen's heroines, where they really think about who who would ma- you know make the better attachment, as they call it. That money is not always a consideration, though. Conveniently, they always end up rich. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Mr. Darcy, Frederick. Wentworth got his fortune, and so that made everything a lot easier. But you even had, like, Henrietta get together with her cousin, I guess it was, Charles Hayter, who's poor as a church mouse because he's a clergyman, and she knows that he will make her happy in a long-term way. And so I think it's recognizing who you are and what you need to have a good partner. And I think the characters... Maybe they're just they're just more thoughtful, or they have more time to think. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. None of them have jobs, so they can really sit and analyze, you know, whether this person will be make a good match. You do wonder if Jane, if this was echoing her life, because she, you know, she had that fling with Thomas Lefroy, and mm-hmm. they were driven apart because he didn't have enough money. This sounds a lot like Anne and and Frederick here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and then, you know, he wound up successful and having enough money and leaving Jane, who never got married, to kind of wonder, I would guess, should we have just plunged in? Were, were we too cautious? What, mm-hmm. you know, did I miss out on this life of happiness by being too practical? And you get the feeling that she's maybe writing a happier ending for Anne than she herself was able to get. Yeah, now that you say it, I, I totally see that. So you want to take the love and you want to take it all into consideration, the, the money and the life, and then I guess follow your heart with a little bit of caution. Right, right, <laughs> right. Because, you know, that's interesting because Lady Russell, this was going to be one of my questions for you. In some ways, she's like a villain, right? I mean, she I she messes everything up. And yet, I don't think we totally resent her. She probably was giving well-intentioned advice and good advice in some ways. She's not trying to ruin people's lives. She's trying to make sure they don't make mistakes and and all of that. And so we're sort of struck with, well, how would you advise a young person who, for example, say you had a a 21-year-old man in your life who said, I met this woman three weeks ago and we're planning to get married. We're headed to Las Vegas. And, you know, you'd <laughs> you'd start asking questions like, are you sure this could be, maybe this is too hasty. Maybe that you could imagine being in this situation where you're always wondering if young love is, is going to last. And if it's maybe just the person doesn't have as much life experience or enough romantic experience to kind of make the right decision. But on the other hand, you know, maybe uh, sometimes it's, it's better to, to follow your heart. Yeah, I, I think we don't think of Lady Russell as a villain because I think she genuinely, it's, it's clear she genuinely loves and cares about Anne in a way that, frankly, no other person right. really does, right? Yep. I mean, her father didn't want her to marry Wentworth, but for very different reasons than Lady Russell. Or in, at least in, it was a very different intention, uh, even though I guess it was sort of the same result. You know, Lady Russell's older and she's got some life experience and she wants what's best for Anne. And there's kind of the suggestion that that she might be channeling Anne's mother. 
that she was close to Anne's mother. Yeah. She's kind of the only person who has ever really viewed Anne the way Anne's mother did. And there is kind of this sense of she's maybe not quite the same as the mother, but she's the closest thing Anne has to one. And that's a really good point, I think, thinking about the loss of the mother. So Anne was something like 14, I think, when the mother died. Mm-hmm. And so she meets Wentworth when she's 19, I think, at Alhop. Yeah, right. She's still really young, and, and she's, she doesn't have her mother's guidance. Maybe she over-relied on Lady Russell's advice for that reason, because she was looking for a mother's advice, mm-hmm. and she didn't have her own. And so she took it maybe a little too seriously. Yeah. In a way that a mother might have handled it differently, who lived with her and who knew her and saw them together. You know, Lady Russell wasn't living with her, so she might not have seen things exactly the same way as her mother might have. Right. Okay, so next thing on your list, Anne's recommendation of bibliotherapy to Captain Benwick at the end of Chapter 11. This is a real delight. I love this passage, too. It's in the sort of final few paragraphs of that chapter. What did you like about it? It struck me because I thought a lot about that concept of bibliotherapy, which is reading to help your mood or help your with life advice. And so we've got Captain Benwick, who's distraught that his fiance has died and Anne has been assigned to talk to him because she likes poetry and he seems to have this interest in poetry. Right. But then she says, no, 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 for what you have right now, poetry's not right. It's too emotional. Yeah. <laughs> to read some prose. Yeah. I just love that. This is the sentence. She ventured to recommend a larger allowance of prose in his daily study and on being requested to particularize, mention such works of our best moralists such collections of the finest letters, such memoirs of character of worth and suffering as occurred to her at the moment as calculated to rouse and fortify the mind by the highest precepts and the strongest examples of moral and religious endurances. Mm. And (laughs) And she sort of says, it's the misfortune of poetry to, it can't be safely enjoyed by those who enjoy it completely because the feelings it produces are too strong. But on the other hand, those are the only people who could truly appreciate it because people who, (laughs) it's the only people who really get how how great poetry is are the ones who will get carried away by it. And so it's it's kind of like, uh, at the same time, it's it's giving a lot of credit to literature, but also in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way of, it's let's sort of mock the idea as well. Yeah. And then I love how, how Jane Austen sets it up that everyone thinks that Benick is in love with Anne. Mm-hmm. But but I he's and it turns out he's not. And but he clearly really appreciates what she given him and that they have this kindred friendship over literature that was really well done. Yeah. Which also had echoes in the Thomas Lefroy relationship. I think it was important to Jane, obviously being uh not just someone who loved reading, but a writer herself, that it was almost like a secret handshake or something. If someone could really appreciate literature and poetry and the the novels and think about them in the right way, it was kind of her way of knowing whether it was someone she was going to be able to have a good conversation with and be compatible with. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. (laughs) Okay, so your fifth moment cracked me up. Chapter 12, you said. (laughs) (laughs) The whole chapter. The whole chapter. I thought that's the chapter where Louisa falls and all the action happens. Wentworth 
revealing subtly his love for Anne and his respect for what she's able to do yeah. and that he's such a good person. He feels his guilt that he didn't, ca- you know, catch her even though it wasn't his fault. And uh, I just thought it was a perfect chapter. Yeah, it is. I love Anne in this chapter. I love the way she takes charge and, and shows how capable she is. Sort of like if the kitchen stove catches on fire, you know, one type of person might go running from the room and, and you know, go hide and scream in the corner or something. And someone else knows exactly what you're supposed to do to put out a fire on the stove and just leaps into action and does it. And So calm. Yeah, yeah so calm, calm and reasonable. Pressure. And also, even better than somebody who just knows how to put out a fire on the stove, it's all about the way she is, how astute she is at reading people. You know, she's yeah. saying, here's what you should do, and here's why you should be the one to do this, and here's what's best for this situation. It's like she's she's a psychologist or a mother or a helper or, a, you know, just someone who can get this done. And I love the way this sort of sets up, as we've been talking about, the difference between young love and a more mature love is this isn't about Anne being the prettiest or about having the nicest figure or being the, the sparkling person at the ball. This is about the kind of person you would want to have in your household and you could imagine spending a lot of time with this person and somebody who would be like a competent life partner. And, you know, yeah. she, she feels very marriageable, but not in any of the ways that the people in this book, other than, you know, a handful really value. She's, it's not about her fortune. It's not about her, you know, all the other the criteria that you might use to measure how marriageable someone is. She just looks like someone who would be a really good ally and a really good person to have on your side. I feel like this is the moment in the novel where Anne grows up Mm-hmm. And realize or realizes that she's grown up and becomes less persuadable. That was the other thing that struck me. This is where she kind of comes into her own. She can stop sort of swaying in the wind with everyone telling her what she should be doing and mm-hmm. kind of really focus on what she needs and what is best for her. It's like a moment where someone says, I'm the best one at this here, and I'm the best one at reading people and understanding a complicated situation and getting things right and then sort of saying, so why don't I listen to myself instead of look to other people to answer these questions for me? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the other thing that struck me that there's no way Jane Austen would have known this, but I've, except through shrewd observation, which is Anne is 27 now. And they, they you know, the, the science says that the human brain matures at around 25. Uh-huh. And so I thought, isn't that interesting that she picked 27 versus, say, 23 or 2 or something mm-hmm. a couple years later, where this is where Anne can really become an adult. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, well, that sets us up for part two, which we will cover with Mike Palindrome. I'm curious, though, Gina, before I let you go here, do you consider yourself to be the reasonable person doling out advice to others, or are you the one who plunges in and and follows terrible ideas to their bitter end? <laughs> um, I'm a very practical person, so I do think I'm more the, the former rather than the latter. Probably sometimes to a fault. Maybe I do need to listen to my uh, heart a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I think I think that's probably also true as I get older, 
and wizened. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More like a Lady Russell than, uh, you know, an Elizabeth or a Mary, or an Anne, for that matter. And yeah. so, you know, I think, yeah, but I think, you know, you have to remember, this is why she strikes the tone so perfectly in Persuasion, which is, you can be older, like Lady Russell, but you have to appreciate the youth and the feelings that they have and how real they are to them mm. and and how important it is to young people to try to marry the two together if you can. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to end. Okay. So we are going to say farewell to Gina for the first half of the book. And as I said, we'll have Mike Palindrome here for the second. Gina Bonagoro, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear what Mike has to say. <laughs> Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Gina Bonaguro for joining me. You can check out our full interview with her on E.M. Forster's A Room with a View in our archives, and you can find her books, including the recent novel The Virgins of Venice at bookstores near you. We will be back next time with some more literary news and part two of Persuasion with Mike Palindrome. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.